Welcome to the Podium Podcast, where we bring together leaders from the worlds of sports, media and philanthropy to discuss the people and stories that change the world. At Podium Pictures, we make impact. We encourage you to visit PodiumPictures.com to learn more about our mission. Now, here's your host, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Brett Rapkin. Okay, so I know I say this every time I intro one of these podcasts, but today we really do have an extra special guest. If you've ever seen the movie Bull Durham, if you've ever seen the movie White Men Can't Jump or Cobb or, or so many of the other great sports movies, today's guest on the Podium podcast is the man behind the movies, Ron Shelton. My personal connection with Ron actually started when I was 11 years old, one of the other fathers at my little league, it was actually one of my dad's old high school baseball buddies, Tommy Shaw, uh, was a prop master. And he invited us to the set in Venice Beach, California, of a movie he was working on. And it was uh, it had the most strange title. It was called White Men Can't Jump. And that day, uh, we visited the set, myself, my brother, Tommy Shaw's kids, and we had lunch and, and took actually a photo with Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes in costume. And uh, years later, I connected with Ron over our, our shared love of, of Bill Lee, the spaceman, the former Red Sox and Expos hippie pitcher. And, and Ron was supportive of the documentary I did about uh, Bill Lee called Spaceman, A Baseball Odyssey which we shot in Cuba. He gave me a blurb for DVD, the DVD cover. If you remember DVDs, they were like those silver things that you put in and you could have films on that have completely gone away. And Ron and I have just built a great friendship over the years. We both like to sit and have a drink and talk about the business. We've talked about numerous projects together. And uh, when I did my Spaceman feature film with Josh Dumel, and Sterling K. Brown, which we talk about a little bit in the podcast. Ron actually mentored me. He was an executive producer, but was there the whole process, helped me work on the script, came to the set, watched a cut of the film, and, and really helped me, especially creatively, move it forward. Ron's just an incredible guy. He gets up every day and he and he writes, rain or shine, no whether people are, are calling him back or not. He's had the he's been at the the, the highest highs of, of Hollywood you know, directing people from Kevin Costner to Woody Harrelson to Kurt Russell to you name it. He's had a legendary career. He's a great guy. He's a, an iconoclast and uh, just super grateful to have had him on this podcast and be able to share that conversation with you now. With no further ado, here is Academy Award nominated director, Ron Shelton. Ron, my friend, it is a, an honor and a privilege to have you. Ron, my friend, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here on the Podium Podcast. Where do we find you today? Well, Brad, first of all, you know, I'm just happy to be here and hope I can help the ball club. You find me in L.A. today. I'm home. My wife's working on Law & Order in New York, so it's just me, my son, and the dog. Very exciting times. <laughs> you know, for, for people that 
that don't know, and I'd be doing a disservice if I tried to encapsulate it in, in, in the intro that I do. Just love to, and I know you've, you've told the story a million times, but we'll make it a million and one. You know, how did, how did you get to being, how did you go from, from playing minor league ball to getting into Hollywood? I don't know what I said before. I wish I had it, notes on it, but it took a while. I fell in love with movies playing baseball because I, you got to get out of the hotel and the motel and in the deep south and wherever we were playing. And air-conditioned movie theater was the best way to do it. And, and then after baseball and graduate school at Arizona, I was painting houses and working carpentry jobs and digging ditches, quite specifically digging ditches for a landscape company. And I started writing screenplays at night. And the transition from baseball to selling something was about 10 years, maybe 12 years. And I sold something for 10 grand and I stopped my house painting job and uh, declared myself a screenwriter. And that one thing led to another. When it comes to Bull Durham, you know, one of, of several hits and, you know, movies that have become part of the zeitgeist. I mean, I'll, I'll send you a picture sometime of a couple kids, five-year-old kids dressed up as Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes on on Halloween. Well, first of all, why, why do you think that numerous of your films have become zeitgeist films, as, as I'm calling it? Well, I, I don't, because they're about more than baseball, basketball, or golf. They're about, you know, the human condition and they're about flawed characters that I think we can identify with because uh, I tend to not make movies about venal, mean-spirited, evil people. And I think we can see ourselves in the people on screen. At least that's my intention. And um, my goal in sports movies is that the sports aficionado will like it a lot. And his friend, girlfriend, boyfriend, anything who comes to the movie theater with will like it just as much as more, even if they hate the sport. So I'm trying to have it both ways. And sometimes I pulled it off. What do you think it is about about sports, whether it's the characters or the setting or, you know, the wins and losses that that when they work, they resonate so deeply as a as a canvas for storytelling? Because we all understand the sports, so you don't need a lot of background. There's not a lot of exposition. Everybody in America knows baseball. Very few people abroad, only a few countries play it. So baseball doesn't travel. But in this country, everybody has played or their kid has played or their neighbors played little league or t-ball or tried to play high school ball or something. So it's like a Western. I've said that many times. You know the background. You know the black hats, the white hat, the Miss Kitty who runs the saloon and and the deputy sheriff who has a limp or whatever. We so you, you don't have to explain a lot. We understand baseball, ball goes a basketball. The ball goes in the basket, it's good. Doesn't go in the basket, it's bad. So, you know, these things, golf, it knocked the ball in the hole. So it's not like making a movie about the Nicaraguan Revolution, which I also made and I'm very proud of. But, boy, there's a lot of exposition for an audience. Sports doesn't need that. It's a, it's a shared background. And if I knew more about soccer or, you know, what the world calls football, I'd make a soccer movie because that would have the biggest audience at all. And I've been offered soccer movies and I always say, I don't, I don't know enough about it. You know, I don't, I don't have a feel for it. So I, I'm not very good at things I don't have a feel for and I'm okay at things I have a feel for. So that's the main thing. What on the screen connects us to the characters? And it usually isn't about winning or losing. You know, Rocky 
didn't win. He went the distance. <laughs> and people identified with that, and it felt more realistic than if he'd have knocked out Carl Weathers in the first Rocky movie. So I think it's finding the universal and connecting it to the audience. And there's, there's not a lot of people who have directed both narrative feature films and documentaries, really. I mean, when you look at the list, it's not that big. I've done a lot of documentaries and, and so far one scripted film, and you've done a lot of scripted films. And it is Jordan, Jordan Rides the Bus. Have you done other? Yeah, you did the Beyond the Glory stuff back in the day. What do you feel like between, between narrative and, and documentary? Are they apples and oranges or, you know, obviously the money's better in scripted films and success, but do you like both as a storytelling device? I like them both. I'd like to make more documentaries. I haven't been offered any or occasionally I'm offered one that I, I don't think there's enough money to do. They don't take a lot of money, but we had enough money to make Jordan rides the bus. We really did. You know, I could interview whoever I wanted and we got footage that was expensive because of MLB. And I enjoyed the process, both Buckner and Jordan. The I would like to, as I said, I'd like to do many more. Just make me an offer, Brett, and I'll do one. Uh, I like the job documentary because you think you know what the story is, and then you start unfolding it, and you're open to that it might be something else. So <laughs> you know what the story is going to be before you start shooting the feature. You might not know the story before you start doing the documentary, and that's what's really compelling about it to me. Do you find that true when you work on documentaries? I mean, most recently, you know, with The Weight of Gold, the the HBO documentary ultim ultimately landed on HBO. I mean, it really started out as I wanted to interview this bobsledder because we had the same eye doctor here in LA. And, you know, he had a, a great story about a surviving a suicide attempt and winning gold in Vancouver. He dies 12 days after my shoot with him, which was shocking and, and sad and horrible. And it opened up this whole other world where you know, I learned that there's this post-Olympic depression thing and, and Phelps and all these other athletes were dealing with it. And it became something completely different than what it started out. I mean, with a feature film, a narrative film with scripts and actors, if something changed that much on set, I imagine that would be a catastrophe. Yeah, they don't change much. They're interpreted. It's like you write a piece of music and then you hire musicians to play it and you conduct the music and it it changes, but the way of gold was so far ahead of its time too. Now, of course, it's front page above the fold. The, the, the mental issues that athletes deal with and the pressure, and now it's it's obvious. But way to gold was really cutting edge. And uh, I, I, as you know, back when you made it, I told you that. But the yeah, it, first of all, because features cost a lot of money. The people writing the check don't want you to invent something else along the way. You can interpret a little bit different, but they want to know what they want to get what they paid for. And you know, if you cast a movie right, you can do that. If you don't cast a movie right, it's you're always fighting an uphill battle. Here's the best question I'll ask today: Did Nuke Lelouch, famously played by Tim Robbins in in your movie Bull Durham, have mental health challenges? No, he was just a kid. He was an overgrown kid. <laughs> He, he no, he didn't have a clue what depression was. Uh, you know, I think if you did a sequel 15 years later, he might have had them because I, I didn't think that he probably was as successful as he could have been. But no, he was he was a child, a man child. You could make a case that Crash and Annie had some issues, but not Nuke. I mean, he did, he dealt with some sports performance issues right around control. But I mean, back then, they probably at that time, let alone when you were playing professional ball they didn't 
necessarily have performance coaches, let alone psychologists or psychiatrists. It was a different time, wasn't it? Well, I, I'm very defensive of his play in the game. I know it's come under criticism. I think if you break down his actual pitching deliveries, most of them were pretty good, and they were quite good for an athlete. I mean, there's only a handful of athletes, of actors who were actually were athletes. Charlie Sheen was one of them, but not. I think his delivery was good. And I also, you know, and we're not going to talk about it a day later, but in the book I just, you know, I, I named five major league pitchers currently who are stars who have crazier deliveries than Tim Robbins' nuclear loose. So, you know, it's like golf. If you, if, if I had my movie star, if Kevin Costner had a swing like Fred Couples, I'd get attacked by the golf media, you know, because it's not a classical swing. Or if he had a swing like Lee Trevino's or you name it, you know, it, it, they wouldn't buy it. So there's a kind of a hypocrisy, I think. If I had a, you know, if you had a, a, a basketball player who, who had a release on his shot the way Jamal Wilkes did, you'd say that's terrible. And Jamal Wilkes is a Hall of Famer. So I, I think people get a little hypercritical, although I'm very careful to hire athletes and actors who can play in, 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 in every frame if I can, because I'm hypercritical. But I also know that Superman can't fly. Hollywood magic, but you certainly, I mean, you've gotten not lucky because you carefully made those choices, whether it was casting Kevin or, or you know, playing multiple sports between baseball and Bull Durham and, and golf and Tin Cup and, and, and Tim as a nuclear Lelouch and others. I mean, in terms of casting, you know, we've talked over the years about, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you say back when you were making Bull Durham, the studios would give you a list of of talent that if you were somehow able to convince them to do it, they would finance the movie. Whereas today, it seems like you have to kind of make that happen in a vacuum and then go to the studio. Is that is that accurate? Yes, and it's very difficult for everybody. Uh, back in the day, you would have a script. If they liked the script and they liked the budget, they may say, we'll make this with three, if you can get three different actors. Any of the three actors will make it. And then they would make the offer to those actors in an order you agreed on, one, two, and three. And if you didn't get one of those three, they'd say, here, go with God, good luck elsewhere. But now you're supposed to bring the actor and you can't make an offer. And even with my credentials, it's very hard to get an actor to read a script or an agent to receive a script without a financial offer attached. So unless it's somebody I've worked with and can call them up on the phone and say, hey, I'll meet you at the bar and give you a script. That, you know, anybody that I've worked with will be happy to read a script, but it's it's very tricky, and I don't quite understand why the studios, and that includes the streaming companies, think it's an efficient way to work, because they could cut to the chase quickly if they made an offer to two or three actors and either got them or didn't. So it's a really oddball system right now. Do you think that technology, and it hasn't just affected documentaries where people have been shooting on video as long forever. Uh, I mean, obviously they started out, you know, 16 millimeter or eight millimeter with Pennebaker and, and the early guys, but it's been a video format for a very long time. You know, feature film was later to the game with video because the production quality, you know, is, is expected to be different with the technology being so inexpensive now, whether it's the cameras or the editing equipment, do you think that it's created a, a glut of, of people I mean, I just watched an Apple, an iPhone commercial, and it was specifically about now you've got Hollywood in your pocket. 
How, how do you think that that technology part has affected film in the business? I think it, it's good. It, it, it's a two, two-edged sword. The good part is that it, it democratizes the business and you don't have to make 20, 30, 40, 100, $5 million, 600,000, 180,000 to make a movie. You can make it for nothing. And the quality is remarkable, can be remarkable. There's, a, I, I think the new uh, Soderbergh movie might have been shot on the phone or somebody. There's a new movie by a major director with big actors. The problem with that is that less attention is paid to the screenplay because when it was expensive to shoot, people worked very hard to get the screenplay right. When uh, uh, the story has to be worked out in great detail. It, if the if it's cheap to shoot, you'll figure, why worry about that? We'll, we'll write it as we go because reshooting it is cheap. And the problem is with a lot of this technology, and I watch these things too, how did they make that for that amount of money? Which I applaud. But I also see they're not very rigorous. There's a lot of lack of rigor in the screenwriting. And because it's, you know, it's too easy to shoot and reshoot and reshoot forever until you get it right, as opposed to getting it right on the page and then going out and interpreting it. You know, I was I was fortunate enough to have you mentor and, and executive produce uh, Spaceman, the, the feature film that that I, I wrote and directed and produced with, with Josh Dumel and... Sterling K. Brown, who's become a superstar since he came into audition, he would never do that today for a, a one or two day role in a a movie with that kind of budget. But no, I, I remember you being sort of surprised at how we were able to pull off that movie on on the budget we did. You know, what? Why did you decide to to take time out of everything you have going on to to help mentor me on on that project? Well, bro, you know, I like you and have for a long time. But your passion for sports, your passion for characters and storytelling, I think every time you brought me a character that you're working on with, or, or a project you're trying to get off the ground, it was always an interesting one, whether it was Bodie Miller or <laughs> from Bodie Miller to Michael Phelps and everything in between. And Bill Lee, of course, who I love. So I think there's a mutual love of, of the stories that don't get told in the world of sports that you have and I have. And, uh, you know, I didn't give you that much time. I, I'm i always way too busy for my own good, but uh, hopefully had a positive impact on it. And I still, it's a miracle movie for the amount of money. I appreciate it. We both like scotch a lot too, and that, that yeah. helps. There's a bar to me that it's pretty easy to be a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that I've been inspired by watching you over the years is just your, you know, your your persistence and, you know, just getting out there and continuing to sit down and write, but also making things happen. I mean, we've talked about, you know, you've been very self-reliant in a lot of ways. I'm sure you've had some some great help along the way, but it seems like you figured out early on that it was it was on you to make to make shit happen. Is that is that accurate? It is on you, whoever you are, to make it happen in almost anything you do. You need help, you need breaks, you need to be in the right place, but you have to keep showing up every day. Every day, there's good years, there's good and bad years. I mean, professionally, sometimes the bad years last for five years or 10 years. But, uh, you know, I just keep showing up. I keep writing. I have a lot of projects out there now, as you know. I sold the Negro League project to Apple. That's going to be a series. 
Uh, I've got a, a Western with Frank Marshall, and I have a mob story based on Michael and Sonny Franzese, which is a pilot with Frank Marshall. I have, um, God, I have a project with John Norville, who did Tin Cup. So I'm, I'm always working. I made an offer on a book today to get the rights, and the book's been around for 20 years. I don't think anybody wants it. I'm hoping they give it to me for nothing. But so, yeah, I, 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 need, I need to work. To me, it's all exploration. I'm learning. Every story teaches me something. I'm getting better as a screenwriter. 40, whatever it is. 40 years, actually. Wow. Hard to this believe. business is kind of like baseball. If you're hitting 300, right? That you're doing, you're doing pretty damn good. If you develop 10 projects and three of them actually get made, you're probably doing a lot better than most. Yeah, and if one of those is a big hit, you're a superstar. That's one out of 10 in development. Three out of 10 development, one out of three on the screen. So, yeah. You've got to be ruthless and you've got to be fearless. Um, I I think more people are afraid of success than failure. And you've got to not care what, in a certain way, what the response is. Uh, I mean, you want to make a successful movie. You want to be, you want to be applauded, not booed. But you, it's like baseball. you got to show up regardless. And, you know, I think sports taught me that. Because I remember I was booed on a play. I should have been cheered. And I was cheered on a play. I should have been booed. Because sometimes the easy ones look hard and the hard ones look easy. And you, you learn early on, oh, wait a minute. Um, what I'm doing is kind of unconnected from what people are saying about what I'm doing. How do you deal with the you know the bad breaks, the, the person who doesn't return the phone call, the actor who doesn't want to read your script? Do you, do you still take that personally or have you learned not to, not to? I never take it personally. That's the key. I never take it personally. And I, I have unreturned phone calls. I get disrespected and insulted all the time. I just move on, you know, because, by the way, if you make then a hit or you get your name in the paper because of a thing you sold or something, all those jerks that won't take your call, suddenly they're on your phone calling you about something. So you just have to be above it, kind of disregard it, not compare what you're doing to the people around you who are passing judgment on it because most of their judgment doesn't mean anything. I, I think that's all sports lessons. I mean, I think I think my playing two sports in college and high school and college and in one sport professionally taught me to be very tough that way, but also resilient. And, you know, I, I don't – yeah, it hurts when you make a failure and it feels good when you make a success, but – all you can do is your best job you could possibly do and walk away. I mean, it seems like it's also a business where, you know, what you're making is subjective, right? I mean, it's not, it's not a product where, you know, you can really judge whether it's good or bad. It's a very personal thing. I mean, some people love it and some people hate it and nobody's wrong, right? Well, sometimes they're wrong. <laughs> some people are good. <laughs> well, there, there are people that have agendas. There's schadenfreude. Some critics have their favorites and their unfavorites and some studios and writers, but you, you have to be bigger than that. I mean, I always figure that my movies will outlast whoever's writing opinions about them and the good ones will. And some of the ones that I think will that weren't even successful, like Cobb. Cobb has a long life and it didn't do any business. And it was very polarizing in the, in the, in the critical world, but, I also get more letters and calls about that than anything I've ever done. So, you know, it's 
it's move on, move on, move on. And, you know, I've been doing this a while and I'm excited about continuing to do it. You know, you're attracted to similar kind of stories as I have. And you just, well, the, my one thing I would tell you is you always pick stories that, that are big, <laughs> great characters, but, you know, there's no way to do a small version of the Bodie Miller story. You got, you know, because now we got, we need the Alps and we need ski season and, and the jet setters and, Geez, why don't you pick a hard one, you know? But it's finding those in the world that, you, that, that can be made for a manageable, in a manageable way, whether it's a true story or a, fi or a fiction story. I think that's that's one of the keys because it is driven by money and algorithms at Netflix and things like that. So you have to take that into consideration. Is it castable? Is it not that expensive? Does it have an audience? And these days, you know, that, you know, the mandate is, you know, inclusivity. So fine. That's that's an easy thing. I've always, actually, my casts and stories that I've written always, and the crews, if you've ever been on my sets, are very naturally inclusive. And nobody had to tell me. I just, that was the way I grew up. And, but, you know, it, it's part of the world right now. And that's a good thing. We talk about the crew and, and building a team. I mean, that crew becomes your family for, for weeks, if not months. And, you know, how do you go about when you've done it, when you've done it right, when you've done it a way that worked the best, how do you go about building that team in a way that's going to, that's going to work? Well, I would have my favorites. And then there were some people on each movie would be unavailable because they were in demand. So you'd add, you try to always add to your, I haven't worked in a while on the set. I hope to break that rule in 22. But, you know, I had my favorite cameraman, my favorite costume designers, my favorite this and that, eight assistant directors. Because I think it does help to have a shorthand with people. As you know, the clock is ticking, money's running, being spent, and you, you don't have time to stop and explain what you mean to people. So if, if it can be done in shorthand, it, it, it benefits the movie. Uh, that's why I tend to work with the same people whenever I can. But, you know, you can't always, you know, I shot a pilot in New Orleans a few years ago, and I think I didn't know anybody in the group. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there are directors who have had the same editor for all their movies, you know. Well, Clint Eastwood had, you know, one director of photography, one cameraman did 12 movies, and then another guy did the next 12, and another guy did the next 12. So... You know, I understand, and he had one AD and one line producer for you. So I get I get that. Makes sense to me. Excellent. Well, we know you're working on a, a book that's going to be incredible, and, and we'd love to do this again when the book comes out so that we can dig into that. So let's call this uh, part one and look forward to, to part two uh, in a few months. Thanks for finding some time, and I love you, and I appreciate having you as a friend. Likewise, Brett, and... Uh, I'll let you know when part two is ready. Sounds good. And we'll get a scotch in person. To prepare for the next soon. meeting. <laughs> Thanks, we Ron. We don't have to wait six months for the scotch either. We can do it next week. Okay. What are you doing later? What are you doing tonight? <laughs> uh, it depends on what my 17-year-old high school son is doing. I'm wrangling him. But possibly before the week's over. Seriously. Sounds good to me. All right. Thanks, Brett.